faith is not a feeling. Feelings are, are based on things that constantly change, like circumstances. God's Word never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I said to him, for you to believe that you need a certain feeling to become a Christian is basically to say, God, your word is not trustworthy. I said, that's why you've never been saved. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Healing of the Nobleman's Son. We are in a study of the Gospel of John And yesterday, we began to look at Jesus' second miracle as outlined in chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. It is the account of a nobleman whose son is gravely ill, and without a miracle, he will surely die. As Pastor Carl begins reading from verse 47 today, we see the man's plea. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. When he heard that Jesus came out of Judea into Galilee... He went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. C.S. Lewis, who was a 20th century Christian apologist, wrote a number of classic works. Among them was one entitled The Problem of Pain. And in that book, he writes, how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. How true. Now, the Bible does say that the blessings of God can lead to repentance, But it also reminds us that very often when God just blesses us so much, what do we tend to do? We relish in the blessings and we forget the God who gave them. So most of the time, God has to use hardship and infirmity and sickness and different things to get our attention. So here is a rich nobleman, an official of Herod, well off in the first century. He had all kinds of money. He would have had all kinds of money. He would have been a wealthy person by first century standards. But his money couldn't buy healing. There's a lot of things money can't buy. Money can buy you a lovely king-size bed, but it can't buy you a good night's sleep. It can buy you a large house, but it can't buy you a home. It can buy you companionship, but it can't buy you a close friend. It can buy you books, but it can't buy the hard work, work it takes to study those books. It can buy a crucifix, but it can't buy a savior. It can buy a, a church building, but it can't buy a piece of real estate in heaven. No, money can buy a lot of things. Money can buy medicine and the most sophisticated of all surgeons, but unless the master physician works behind those things, it can't buy health. This man is absolutely desperate. Lewis also writes in that book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so this man is desperate, and so he travels about 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana. It's a rise of about 2,000 feet in altitude. Capernaum is at the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level, Cana is about 1,300 feet above sea level. It would have been a hard, tough ride to have accomplished in three hours. Now, this man, if he had walked it, it would have taken him about seven or eight hours. But he's rich. He wouldn't have had to have walked. He could have taken a chariot, could have ridden a horse or rode a camel. But it would be a tough trip. But he was going to go because when someone you love is sick, you'll do whatever you need to do to help them. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. You see that word requesting? 
It's the Greek word that refers to an earnest plea. And so some translations render it begging him. He's imploring him, requesting him, begging him. Come and heal my son. He's desperate because his only hope is a miracle. Jesus therefore said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, please note, the rebuke here is in the plural. And so the translators have added the word people in italics. It's not part of the original. Modern English, unlike the old English of the King James, doesn't distinguish in pronouns between singular and plural. So the rebuke is not just to the noblemen, but to all of the Galileans. You people won't believe unless you see a sign and a miracle. But this royal official exemplifies what's wrong with the Galileans as a whole. The welcome that they gave the Lord Jesus Christ was fundamentally flawed. And as we've already pointed out, as he says in verse 5, they received him. But John is really writing with a deep sense of irony. And he tells us why. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. See, a faith that rests on miracles alone is not sufficient. Jesus will later say in the same district of Galilee in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. In fact, he will do miracle after miracles, and many of the Jews of his day will witness them. And at the end of his three-year ministry, do you know what they will conclude? They will conclude, what you do, you do by the power of Satan. A faith that is based solely on miracles is typically a selfish faith. And it will always want more, and typically something bigger and better. These guys who walk around our country and world claiming to do miracles really scare me. Because so many of them have as the focus of their ministry miracles and not the truth and preaching of God's scripture. And what they typically do is they sow seeds for a spurious faith. Well, these people here in Galilee are rebuked by the Lord because they were the kind of people who constantly needed a miracle. What a contrast to the Samaritans who just took the Lord Jesus for what he said. Now, remember, the Bible tells us that real faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus knew that a temporary excitement or a faith that's based on a miracle is not enough. In fact, when we come to chapter 6, he's going to do an absolutely incredible miracle in Galilee. He's going to feed 5,000 people and everybody's going to love Jesus. Oh, he's great. Look at the entertainment. Look at the miracles and the food. It's wonderful. But when he interprets the miracle... And he begins to preach doctrine. All but a handful of the 5,000 people turn away. Now, they received him in this town because it was a faith that was built solely on miracles, and that kind of faith cannot please God. Now, don't get me wrong. Neither Jesus nor the apostle John is discrediting the importance of our Lord's signs. He's already said, look, the function of me recording the miracles that I record is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing that you might have faith in his or life in his name. And Jesus himself twice over in this gospel will affirm the importance of the miracles that he does. But this gospel will make it very clear that you have to believe in something more than just a miracle in order to be saved. Seeing signs and believing in them is a great beginning. But that kind of faith cannot save you any more than the kind of faith to trust God to put food on your table, to 
to take care of your sick baby, to pay the next house payment or car payment or whatever it might be. That kind of faith cannot write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a great beginning, but ultimately you must come to a person, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust Him. It's one thing to respond to a miracle. It's quite another thing to give yourself to Him where you continue in His Word. Now, you see, God may use an apologetic like miracles is recorded in this gospel to show that He's a trustworthy God. Obviously, you cannot put your faith in someone who is not trustworthy. And so God will show that he is trustworthy. He doesn't ask the believer to take a blind leap of faith. No, he demonstrates that he is a trustworthy God. But having demonstrated that, he asks you ultimately to respond. You can't keep saying, show me another miracle. Give me another sign, Lord, and I will believe. You say, Pastor, what's so wrong with wanting to see a miracle in order to believe? Jesus will say, an evil An adulterous generation craves for a sign, a miracle. Now, if God gives you a miracle, that's wonderful. But don't crave one, because let me tell you why. When you demand a miracle, you really dishonor God and you profane his holy name. Because basically you're saying, God, I can't believe what you say unless you do a miracle. Suppose I say to my son, son, I'm putting $100 in the bank for you. And this is the first of many installments to follow because when you leave my home, I want you to have a little nest egg in which to get started in life. My son says, oh, dad, that's wonderful. But how do I know you did it? Can I see the deposit slip? Can you give me some proof, dad? You see the insult? See, your word is not enough. So I need a sign. And when you basically say, God, give me another sign so that I can believe, you're basically saying God is not trustworthy. So Jesus says to this crowd and to this official, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. It's not just a rebuke as much as anything. It's a lament of the spiritual condition of these people. Now, in Judea, we saw in chapter 2, that people had miracle faith. But that's all they had, and so Jesus would not entrust himself to them because their mentality, like these people, is seeing is believing. Isn't that what people tell you sometimes? Kind of a pragmatic philosophy. I'll believe if God will show me a miracle. But seeing is not believing. Seeing is seeing and believing is believing. The nobleman certainly believed that Jesus could heal his son. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come to him to ask him for a miracle. But he's often his theology. He thought he had to bring Jesus to Capernaum, maybe to lay hands on him or whatever. He thought he had to bring Jesus back to his home in order for his son to receive back his life. But God's not restricted to healing in that fashion. Some time ago, a man called me who uh, who listens to us, our radio ministry in North Carolina, and got my number, I guess, out of the phone book and called me up. He said, Pastor... Could you come to Charlotte, North Carolina? He said, my my child is very sick, my daughter. He was an elderly man. His adult daughter was in her 40s. And they say that she will not live the night. I know you're a man of God. Would you come and pray for her? I said, you know, I'd really like to go, but I can't. You know, you're only one person as a pastor, and sometimes everybody wants to pull you in one different directions. 
But I said, I'll get down on my knees right here in my study, and I'll pray with you right now. And I got down on my knees, and I heard this man's broken heart. We prayed for his daughter. And he calls me up the next day. He said, God did a miracle. My daughter is healed. God did that. Distance isn't a problem for God. God can heal if it's 20 miles away or 20,000 miles away. He's not restricted as the omnipresent, omnipotent God. And so John wants us to understand that Jesus is no ordinary person. That he is the Lord God. And so this man, he doesn't understand that at this point. And he begs him and he uses a tense. He continually, habitually asks him to come to his home. The royal official says, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, what is he interested in? Well, the welfare of his child. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with wanting God to do something supernatural. I can promise you if I had a sick child on his deathbed, I would be bombarding heaven in prayer as this man is. Nothing wrong with that. And yet he's not yet willing to bow at the feet of Jesus Christ and worship him as Lord. He's like a lot of us who are concerned about our wealth, our health, our children, our families, our future. But that kind of faith alone is not the kind of faith that God ultimately wants to develop in our life. God wants a strong faith. The kind of faith that is interested in the glory of God. The kind of faith that wants to be in right relationship with God. The kind of faith that's not simply interested in the physical, but the spiritual. Not simply interested in the temporal, but the eternal. Now you see that word, child, sir? Come down before my child dies. It's a term of affection. The first plea he makes concerns his son. Now he uses here the diminutive, on my child, my little boy, my lad, my dear one. He's expressing the tender place, hoping maybe that will persuade the Lord to come down before his little boy dies. Now, I said in my introductory comments, most of us envision a long life for our children. We don't expect to bury them. But that promise is not given to us. Last summer, we were on vacation in North Carolina up there in the mountains, and we're walking a, a cemetery. We've walked a lot of cemeteries over the years as a family, and I've had kind of a fascination. I love to read headstones. And as we walked in this cemetery that has been in continual use for some 200 years. It was a fresh reminder of all the children that have been buried there even in the last few years. In fact, the first grave that was ever dug on earth was not for a father or for a mother, but for a child. None of us have the promise of tomorrow. James says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And so I see a father who is scared to death. He sees his son's life like a vapor that appears on a cold day and it's about to vanish and he is begging and pleading the Lord to do something. Now that's the plea he gave. Finally, I want us to consider the path that the nobleman took. Having compassion on this man, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. He's directing this man on the path of true faith. In essence, he's saying, all right, let's find out, Mr. Nobleman, if you're different from the rest of these Galileans. Let's see if you will believe without seeing. You want me to come down to Capernaum? Well, I'm not coming. Because it's not necessary for me to go there. I don't have to be physically present in order to heal your son who's at the point of death. I'm going to stay right here. You go. 
your son lives. Now the man said, sir, come down. And Jesus says, go your way. The man says, come down before my son dies. And Jesus said, your son lives. The answer he gave is not the answer this man expected. He had been urging him to come to Capernaum, thinking that it was necessary for his presence. But distance, again, is not a problem for the Lord. God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it. When I need an answer to prayer, Jesus does not physically have to be here to answer it. I have one who intercedes on my behalf to the Father. We have the Lord's Word. Not in verbal form as this man received it, but in written form in what we call the Bible. We have God's Word. And so we need to read the Word of God. And when the Spirit of God applies it to our heart, we need to walk in faith. When God speaks, we need to respond. And so Jesus is putting this man to the test. He's not giving him a sign. He's asking him, like the Samaritans, to believe nothing but his bare naked word. There's a promise given to this man from God the Son, and he has to choose what he's going to do with it. Now, obviously, this man understood the rebuke that Christ had given to these Galileans. And so for him, the word was enough. He doesn't continue to plea. He, in faith, goes home. Notice, the man believed that Jesus spoke to him, what Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. By the way, that's what true faith is. It's just taking God at his word. I was witnessing to a man this week, and I was asking him if he would like to receive Christ as his Savior. He said, you know, Pastor, I prayed that prayer before, and last time I prayed it, I didn't feel any different. I said it doesn't have anything to do with a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. Feelings are are based on things that constantly change, like circumstances. God's Word never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I said to him, for you to believe that you need a certain feeling to become a Christian is basically to say, God, your word is not trustworthy. I said, that's why you've never been saved. Because in essence, what we are doing, though maybe not consciously, is we are calling God a liar. It is to say that the validation of God's word is built on the way I feel rather than on the integrity of a person who gave the word. Now, while I preach the Bible this morning, you are hearing God's word. And faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why I preach the Bible every week. I could get up here and tell a lot of stories. Be really easy. Instead of spending 20, 25 hours every week preparing the sermon, I could get up here because I'm a talker. I could talk. (laughs) But you don't need my talk. You need to hear what God says. If you want people to believe, you've got to give them something to believe, and what they need is God's Word. Read Hebrews 11. Case after case, God says, and in spite of all the circumstances, those men and women go for broke, and they take God at His Word. That's faith, and without faith, you can never please God. You say, well, Pastor, my problem's a little different. I don't need a miracle per se, I just have trouble believing what I've heard. I I can't help that I can't believe. I can't help it that I can't seem to become a Christian. Oh, yes, you can. Let me tell you something. You don't have an intellectual problem. You've got a moral problem. Your problem is not in your head. Your problem is in your heart. The Bible says take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. 
It's not that you cannot believe. It's that you will not believe. It's that you are unwilling to put yourself under the authority of the Lord God who made the promise. Listen, God has given you faith. We studied in John chapter 1, the true light coming into the world enlightens every man. You can believe if you will believe. The problem is you won't believe. God created you and enlightens you by his sheer grace and mercy that you might come to faith in his character. Just like he created my eyes that they might respond to the light. Just like he created my ears that they might respond to sound. God created my spirit that I might respond to his character as I hear his word. Not because of signs and wonders, but because of God himself. Look further at verse 51. And as he was now going down, remember up and down in the Bible is not directional like we use the terms north and south, but topographical. It refers to altitude. And if you've been there to the Sea of Galilee, again, it's 700 feet below sea level and all around it, the land goes up. And as he was going down, now going down, you see that word now, it implies a period of time has gone by. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. By the way, their statement, his son was living, is made in the same tense that he made the plea. Oh, boss, your son's alive. He's been made well. The fever's gone. They're going on and on and on. That's the tone in the original. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, the seventh hour is one o'clock in the afternoon. Remember, the only ones in the first century who uh, counted time like we do today from midnight to noon and noon to midnight with the Romans. And typically, they only did that concerning legal documents so that when a document expired at midnight, you had a legal basis in which to measure time. But the common people of Rome, and certainly all the Jewish people, really going all the way back to the time of creation, thought of the day as running from dawn to dark. And so the Jews, like most Romans, divided the day, at least the daylight hours or night watches, but the daylight hours from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so when he says the seventh hour, he's talking about one o'clock in the afternoon. Yet when asked for the precise time, at what time did the fever left him? Notice how they do not respond. They do not say today at the seventh hour. Very important. But yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. What does that tell you? It tells me that the father waited a day to go home. Remember, the two towns are only about 20 miles apart. It's one o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus speaks the word that he believes. He could have gone home that night and made it there that night. But the servants greet him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Evidently, this man's faith was so strong, he was not in a hurry to get home to see his son, though you know he earnestly wanted to see him. Perhaps he was tired, hungry, emotionally exhausted from weeks of sickness, and he collapses and spends the night. Maybe he had driven that horse so hard he's going to give it arrest, whatever the circumstances, he could take time to eat a meal, get a good night's sleep, get up and go the next day to, 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 to Capernaum. No longer any need for breakneck speed. Hey, this is great faith. Maybe one of the best examples of faith in the entire gospel of John. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. He is relaxing and trusting in the greatness of God to wait a day. So the father knew 
that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. The boy had been completely healed, and the healing took place at the very moment Jesus spoke the word. By the way, he's not surprised, but with kind of a calculating mind, he says, hey, guys, what hour did it happen? Boss, at 1 o'clock, the fever left him. So the father knew. He knew it was the exact time, 20 miles away, that Jesus spoke the word, and it was done. And the Bible says he himself believed. You say, I thought he already believed. Yes, according to verse 50, he believed Jesus' promise. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, but that was not the kind of faith that would write your name in the Lamb's book of life. Hey, there's a lot of pagans today who believe God for something, but not the kind of faith they need that would write their name in the Lamb's book of life that will guarantee it will be there when they meet God in judgment. Previously, he believed God for a healing. But he had not believed God yet for salvation. Previously, he believed God for a miracle, but not in Christ as the Messiah. Here, in essence, the word is being used to describe someone who becomes a Christian. Previously, he had known and believed enough about Christ to knew that he could heal a son. But this sign, this miracle, as it unfolded, he knew that Jesus was the Christ. He knew that he did something that only God can do instantaneously, over distance, completely, his son is healed. And it transformed his faith into the person of Jesus Christ. And like the Philippian jailer, he's excited. He goes home. He gathers a family. I can see him. Hey, wife, children, servants, household. The scriptures say Messiah is coming. He's come. Believe in him like I have and you will be saved. And there's a revival in that household in Capernaum. Think about it. What good would it have been for him to only have believed Christ's promise to heal, for the son to have been healed, everything to be well, and then for that family and that son to die someday and go to hell. But that's what a lot of people do. Soon as they got what they want, that's it. Now, Christ didn't heal everybody. He healed certain individuals to communicate certain truths, but he'll save anybody who will call upon his name, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He didn't come principally as a teacher, though he taught. He didn't come principally as a healer, though he healed. He came as a savior, for the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which is lost. John said there's a whole lot of other miracles the Lord did. But these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might find life in his name. He concludes this story with a little editorial comment. Notice. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This is the second time in terms of those done in Galilee because many others were done as we already noted at the end of chapter 2 and certainly the second sign that John records and spends time with. The first, to show that Jesus can answer man's disappointments. The second, to show that Jesus can answer man's doubts. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 011. 
Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.